<laughs> this is a kind of wild thing for an attorney to say, but perhaps not as much litigation focused, right? Like perhaps we are better served by acknowledging and accepting the fact that our laws will never set us free, that we will set us free. Right. Um, and that in, in doing that, we need to fundamentally rethink um, what some of us are doing, myself included. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today, we're joined by Nicholas Height, founder of the Height Law Group, the past co-chair and member of the Louisiana Bar Association's LGBTQ Diversity Subcommittee, and an expert in LGBTQ advocacy. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So Nicholas, let's start out with a question about what's on your mind most right now. Tell us what you're thinking about. Ooh, what am I thinking about? Uh, at this point, I think like a lot of people, I'm thinking about a lot of different things um, all at once. Um, there's a lot is, going on. It, there's plenty <laughs> going on. And I think the reason I'm thinking about all of it or a lot of it is it suddenly has become very clear to so many people how so much is interconnected um, that, you know, my work with LGBTQ folks um, parallels intersects and is connected with working with poor folks, with black folks, with people of color, um, with workers, with um, folks who face health disparities, right? All of these groups that for a long time were seen as separate, distinct, um, are now seen as more of a collective community. Um, right. And so a lot of these issues are all coalescing and hopefully causing us all to think about a lot of things all at once. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about that over the course of our conversation, Nicholas. But uh, before we do that, can you tell us a little bit more about your practice and, and how you operate? Sure. So my practice um, is a solo practice. It's just me and one administrative assistant um, focused on serving LGBTQ folks in the New Orleans metro area primarily, but actually we wind up serving folks across the entire state of Louisiana from the beginning, which was about nine years ago now. I've been focused on providing sliding scale services, sort of recognizing the fact that the Deep South, Louisiana, um, LGBTQ folks in particular, tend to be poorer folks mm -hmm. um, and so have uh, less access to legal services because of that. Um, so in addition to litigation for LGBTQ folks, um, I also do advocacy work in the community. I do um, some educational training, some skills training in local law schools, um, just kind of whatever I can get my hands on to better serve not just my clients, but my friends, my neighbors, my community members. And can you tell us a little bit more about how you developed the firm from, from the get-go and, and how you found, you know, maybe a, a larger audience than you might have expected? And, and as you mentioned, maybe a, a broader diversity of socioeconomic means that you might have expected. Yeah, so the, the sort of reality of it is I finished law school um, 
so the really honest version of all of this is I finished law school, um, didn't exactly graduate at the top of my class. Um, the economy in the United States was still sort of sluggish, I think is how mm -hmm. we'll put that. So it was hard for me to find work. Um, the work that I did find, I didn't like, not because I didn't like the type of work as much as I didn't like more than anything else, the way that the attorneys I was working for were treating their clients. It just didn't mesh with what I thought an attorney should do in serving their clients. Um, that got so frustrating that I actually quit practicing law for an entire year and just worked as a dog walker and a barista um, <laughs> until finally I was like, you know, I spent a lot of time and effort getting this degree. We're going to give it one more try. At the same time as a program through the Bar Association was started for young attorneys who wanted to start their own practice. Um, so I went through that fellowship program and gained a lot of mentorship and skills around how to run a practice because really I just knew queer folks in general don't have reliable access to knowledgeable attorneys that mm -hmm. they're comfortable working with. I knew that most of the folks I knew wouldn't be considered uh, living in poverty, but they're poor. And so if even a small legal issue came up that required paying a few thousand dollars in attorney's fees, I don't know how, I don't know how my mom would do that. I don't know how my friends would do that. Um, so that was really what motivated me to, to work in a way that was accessible to folks like that, um, that in many ways weren't able to access completely free services, right? but certainly couldn't access the only other meaningful alternative, which was incredibly expensive. Right. And so in doing that, as you say, I just kind of happened upon <laughs> what turned out to be an wildly underserved community and, and market, you know, if we, if we put it in those terms. And let's turn our attention maybe to some of the events of the past few days and, and weeks and months. And there's, there's been a lot affecting all areas of practice, but especially uh, your practice area. Just last week, there was a ruling from the Supreme Court regarding transgender and LGBTQ rights. Can you walk us through that ruling and what some of the implications for you and your clients will be? I will do my best as a non-constitutional law scholar. I will do my best. Um, essentially, if we really want to boil it down to its simplest terms, right? This ruling says that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which covers a variety of, of public um, issues from uh, voter rights to employment to um, public education, right? One of the things, as I say, that it covered is, is employment and non-discrimination in employment. This decision said that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, discrimination on the basis of um, LGBTQ status, right, being either uh, homosexual or transgender, which I think is the language that the court used, constitutes discrimination on the basis of sex and is thereby um, prohibited under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that's a really wonky way of saying um, that a person can't be fired 
or prevented a promotion or not even offered a job necessarily simply because they are in a same-sex relationship or identify as a member of the LGBTQ community or because of their gender identity or expression. And do you see immediate impacts for your clients that this ruling will help provide some, some clarity in specific situations or what, what do you see the on the ground impacts for this ruling being? So I think the reality is for my clients, this ruling isn't going to be a, a huge game changer for them. I think the cases that were that worked their way up to the Supreme Court are are much more the exception than the rule, right? Those cases were examples of pretty explicit discrimination solely because people identified as either gay or transgender. Right. Um, I think most of us know from personal experience or from you know anecdotal um, stories that that's not usually what happens, right? Um, and so in places like Louisiana, which is a so-called right to work state, um, employers can hire and fire anybody at any time for almost any reason and for no reason. So you go to work, somebody finds out that you're gay or, you know, you begin presenting in a way that's in alignment with your gender identity as a transgender, gender nonconforming person, the employer doesn't have to explicitly say why they're firing you. Um, it's very easy for them to find a sort of smoke screen to put in front of that. Um, and that's always the challenge in litigating these cases is that you have to work your way through that smoke screen to try and prove the underlying cause. And that right. can be really, really difficult, um, even with this clarifying language from the Supreme Court the actual nuts and bolts of working one of these cases, I don't know is, is going to change dramatically in that way. And how significant do you see this, this ruling as, as being, and it, depending on the state, obviously there's, there's different uh, rules relating to employment and um, there might not be as much latitude in being able to let people go for, for no reason in at least some, jurisdictions. Do you see this as being something that really helps strengthen uh, LGBTQ, sorry, uh, strengthen LGBTQ rights in, in specific states? Or, or do you see this as, as, as more directional that is maybe going to be useful going forward for new precedents to be formed? So I think in terms of mitigation in terms of the legal sphere. Um, there are some, some definite uh, positive changes to come out of this ruling, right? So, so one is certainly that this sets a very different tone um, than uh, a lot of recent Supreme Court rulings have set around right. LGBTQ rights and, and rights of other minority groups, right? This really sets a very different, as you say, direction for folks to be moving and to be working in potentially. I think the other thing to keep in mind, and, and this is still a very new ruling and there's a lot of debate around these sort of things, but from my appreciation and, and my perspective, right, this ruling that clarifies what the definition of sex discrimination is um, can now potentially be applied to a plethora of other circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Justice Alito in his dissent even noted that this definition 
applies to over a hundred different federal statutes that cover a wide range of things. Um, so a lot of the issues that we've seen come up in recent history um, for students in the Department of Education and their guidelines from recent um, rulings by HUD about how trans folks can or shouldn't be housed in homeless shelters to you know, some of the newest uh, rule changes from the Department of Health and Human Services around medical treatment and, and health services for trans folks, right? All of these things are potentially gonna be impacted by this one ruling. Um, so that's a real, that really is a, a game changer in a lot of ways. It sets a very different tone for folks moving forward. Um, but again, that's happening at high level, that's happening at federal level how that trickles down to state operations, how that trickles down to day-to-day -day life for folks um, can be really unpredictable, unfortunately. But I do think it's true that this sort of sets a different tone and sets a different direction for things moving forward. And, and given the new direction this may have set us on, what, what battles do you see lying ahead, Nicholas? And, and where do you think LGBTQ advocates should be focusing their their energy going forward. So this fully falls into the category of just one man's opinion, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> because I think you could get a hundred different answers from a hundred different people about this. Um, but I think, as I said at the outset, right, for me, the fact that so many of these issues are coming into alignment, so many of these, these communities are starting to realize that in pulling together, um, we're pulling with greater strength, um, would be a, a, a big focus for folks that work in LGBTQ advocacy. So prioritizing trans folks and gender non-conforming folks, which historically have been so wildly marginalized within even the queer community, um, people of color, black folks within the queer community, right? That the people that are existing at these um, compounded layers of discrimination, um, what we can do to sort of leverage um, our resources, leverage our privilege, leverage whatever you want to call it, that some of us have and some of us don't, um, to try and create a, a genuinely more just system for everyone, um, I think is really where LGBT work, LGBTQ work needs to be headed. Um, and so for me, what that looks like is perhaps not, <laughs> this is a kind of wild thing for an attorney to say, but perhaps not as much litigation focused, right? Like perhaps we are better served by acknowledging and accepting the fact that our laws will never set us free, that we will set us free. Right. Um, and that in, in doing that, we need to fundamentally rethink um, what some of us are doing, myself included. So Nicholas, you, you made a comment at the opening of the show about the fact that we're, we're seeing this common thread maybe in the, the events of the last few weeks and, and, and the last few months more generally where you know, access to justice for so many of these communities that that are underserved by uh, the legal system overall certainly have 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 that as a common thread. We've got the the black community, we've got the LGBTQ community, and 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 others that are generally more 
uh, economically disadvantaged, just with a, a huge chasm between their legal needs and, and the industry's ability to meet those needs and the justice system ability to administer those, those needs and, and meet those needs. Can you speak a little bit about the, um, the, the on-the-ground work you've done advocating for LGBTQ people and maybe more generally talk about how you, you'd like to see the industry step up and, and, and serve that, the needs of that community and maybe other communities as well? Um, for me, uh, what that advocacy work has looked like and, and what that sort of personal stepping up has meant um, has quite literally been a, a personal choice to recognize that um, I, I'm not gonna work in a way and I'm not gonna run my practice, my business in a way that is primarily focused on enriching me. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in a more blunt way of putting that is to say it's, it's kind of a choice to be not rich. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, in many ways, I'm, I'm very candid that I'm better off than, you know, my mother was when she was raising me and my brother and, and sort of generations before that, that I'm very grateful to have that opportunity. But it also means that I'm choosing to not make as much money as I possibly could if I went about things in a different way and, right. and being okay with that. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I mentioned before as, as sort of a starting point for the practice was this huge disconnect in the legal field, right? That our two options for services are completely free and completely unaffordable and that nobody is willing to exist in between or very few folks are really willing to exist in between um, and that I think the legal profession the legal industry is really an example of what we've seen play out in other industries in really disturbing ways which is this idea that we can push capitalism endlessly that there is an endless opportunity for folks to make money and become rich off of this um, without there being any real consequences and and I think we're starting to realize that there is a real consequence. The real consequence is that offices like public defenders are not being funded. Um, poor folks are getting wildly disparate outcomes in court. Um, people of color who in our society are basically a stand-in for, for poor folks, right? They're mm -hmm. essentially the same thing because of the way our systems are structured are getting wildly different outcomes. Any sort of marginalized community are getting wildly different outcomes in part because the structures that we put in place that result in attorneys being seen as comparable to doctors and a lot of other professions that just is an opportunity to become incredibly wealthy very quickly um, without acknowledging the consequence of that, uh, that that money comes from somewhere. There is not a bottomless pit of resources that's, that's equally distributed among everybody. Um, so that I think is sort of, the kernel around a lot of the changes that I would want to see grow um, in the legal profession, but it takes a lot of different forms. It takes the form of really thinking about how much money do you actually need to charge your clients for. Um, if you work in larger firms, it means questioning who really deserves to be elevated within the company, right? And, and why? Um, and, and I think a lot of those conversations need to be rooted back in 
what are we representing within our community? Um, are, we, are we representing an organization that says that we're going to take without giving? Are we representing an organization that's going to um, be more comfortable within ourselves, whether that's white people, whether that's men, whether that's a certain um, socioeconomic class, and we're not gonna take a chance on anybody else? These are really powerful and important questions that the legal profession needs to have, and they just, I feel, have refused to confront a lot of those things. Um, and I think it may be because the very premise of the legal system is that, for attorneys anyway, we don't answer the questions. We raise the questions, we argue the questions, but we don't have to be the final deciders. You leave right. that to a judge to figure out, right? And I think taking that sort of pass on some of these issues is not serving us well. And maybe to make the discussion around the, the specifics, specific types of advocacy uh, you're doing, Nicholas, can you give us some examples of, uh, of specifically how you've advocated for the LGBTQ community and, and maybe some, some examples? So it, it's sort of at this point, after doing this for a few years, you kind of if you picked a, a, a legal issue, it's, it's probably one that I've dealt with. Um, so employment discrimination, housing discrimination, medical care discrimination, discrimination in um, schooling. Um, I think the most common and the, the most consistent issue that I've worked with folks around has been for trans folks to get um, their identity documents corrected. So name changes, gender marker corrections, that sort of thing. Um, that has really been a, a, at, at the core of a lot of the work that I do. Um, and, in, and in advocating for that, it's this difficult role. It's become easier now, but it was very difficult at the beginning because I didn't fully understand it in the way that I do now, which is that my role, and I think a lot of attorneys would recognize this, is to bridge a gap between a system that is very small and finite and constricted in what it allows and what it can see, and clients who are very um, expansive and imaginative and free in who they are and how they exist in the world. And so as that bridge, right, I have to, in some instances, ask my clients to be a little bit smaller while I'm also asking the court to be a little bit bigger. Um, right. and, like that. and that push and pull is a very delicate balance to try and strike um, that's taken a few years to figure out. But what it can mean is for example, in going through the name change process, right? And this is something that when I speak at law schools about what it's like to work with LGBTQ clients, one of the things I always tell folks is that in meeting with a client and preparing them and educating them about what the name change process is gonna look like and when we go to court and yada, 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 if I've done my job correctly, a client will come into my office nervous or uncertain about going through this process. And by the time we're finished talking, they should be ready to go kick down the door of the courthouse and, you know, as cliche as it is, sort of shout at the top of their lungs, I'm queer, I'm here, get used to it, right? Right. Um, and, and because that's where I want them to be. 
it's then my job to say, that's great. You be your biggest, boldest, strongest self. But <laughs> to get through this process, we're going to have to make a little bit of a compromise. Um, and I need you to be, I need the client to be at their strongest and their boldest so that they can decide how much compromise they're willing to make. Um, and, and so I think that's a fundamental premise of, of, of LGBTQ advocacy, particularly under the, the legal system, but kind of across the board, is that the role of the attorney is to let the client be as fully themselves as they possibly can be. And it's the attorney's role to take on as many of the compromises as possible, not the client. Um, so again, to use the example of the, the name change process, I will never forget, um, and it's just one of countless examples at this point, but I'll never forget early on having a client who you know, ultimately said, listen, I really, I don't even wanna to have to step foot inside a courthouse. Um, it's not going to be comfortable. It, it, I don't want to have to do it. Can you do this without me? And course, yes, we'll figure out a way. We'll make that work. So ultimately, it comes to getting the person's judgment signed by the judge. I bring it to the judge's chambers, uh, give it to the court staff, who then go behind a closed door. So there's really only a door and a sort of frosted glass partition between them and me. And I'm sitting there in the waiting area and I can hear three or more people on this judge's staff perusing this name change paperwork, commenting on um, trans folks, asking if I looked like, you know, a female presenting individual or did I look like a guy or, you know, just really discussing the subject of this, this request in a deeply inhumane way. And my thought was, A, that's terrible, and I think profoundly unacceptable, and B, God forbid that my client had been willing to be there with me, that right. she would have had to sit there and hear that, right? That thank God I was the one that had to take that blow for her, and she would never have to know that that was happening um, to her. Because that again, as, as big and as bold and as brave as I want my client to be, that's not something that she deserves to have to deal with. Um, but I can take one for the team. And Nicholas, you, you talked about this briefly earlier, but if we're trying to bridge this gap between the, the demand for legal services in this, this community, which is an enormous and there's all sorts of systemic bias against trans folks and, and, and the broader community. How do you believe we actually start to, to meet this need uh, within the, the legal industry? And, and we see this at a macro level, of course. We talk a lot about the World Justice Project data that shows that 77% of consumers with legal needs didn't have those needs addressed by, by a lawyer. And I think that that statistic just gets worse as you start to look at these, these specific communities. Um, that are, are, are very underserved. Um, and, and yet we have so many lawyers, you know, telling us that they, the number one thing they want is more clients as well. You've got this almost paradoxical uh, supply and demand mismatch. Uh, and, and I'm curious to hear from you how we, we might go about bridging that, that gap and, and administering 
and delivering more, more justice where it's sorely needed. I think one of the first things that attorneys need to do or, and the legal profession in general, right, is sort of look in your own backyard. So for me, fool that I am, I kind of stumbled into this niche that was very um, fruitful for my business. Um, but when I finally sort of stopped and realized what was happening and looked at statistics, it made total sense. And I'm still kind of surprised that no one jumped on it earlier, that you know, in Louisiana, right, the, the vast majority of folks that are living in New Orleans, over 50% are living at or below poverty level. Um, for LGBTQ folks, the vast majority of LGBTQ folks who are raising children reside in the Deep South or the Midwest, right? Um, so to be a family law specialist and an LGBTQ law specialist who is willing to work at a reduced rate, I mean, that's just kind of, turns out, hitting the nail on the head. And I think anybody can reproduce that in their own community because no two communities are gonna be the same, right? But each community is gonna have these overlapping and reinforcing needs. So I think the first step is just figuring out who is in your own backyard? Who is in your neighborhood? What does that look like? And then from there, it may mean that um, what you need to do is, is restructure billing and financial um, structures so that you become more affordable to more people. Or it may mean that you need to be more proactive in um, assuring community members that you can provide um, consistent, um, culturally aware, and understanding services for them. Um, it may mean that you just need to be practicing in a different field of law, right? That if you're living in a place that's facing uh, a huge boom in um, mortgage failures, maybe you need to be looking at the housing uh, legal field right. as an area to transition, right? And I think the legal profession in a lot of ways is willing to remain so monolithic and so um, stagnant in our structures and, and, and things of that nature, that it's not only holding the profession back, it's holding back our potential clients. And I think you're right. exactly right that there's all these people who want to be able to hire an attorney and there's all these attorneys who want somebody to hire them. And I think attorneys aren't willing to sort of bend down to reach those clients and those clients can't reach any higher, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and so that is really what it is. And, and so, you know, I, I get weird looks and probably people who are going to listen to this are going to think I'm crazy when I say that, you know, it's not entirely true, but I kind of chose to be poor. That's, that's part of it is, is sort of acknowledging that I can only go so far if I'm also trying to bring other people up with me. And that, that that's kind of a trade-off that I'm willing to make. Um, and I think more people probably would be willing to make that trade off. They're just scared of what might happen, but I say, do it, or do it. And, <laughs> and, and maybe they don't even realize it's, it's possible. You know, there, yeah. there's so much inertia around this is the way things are done. And these are the rates we charge. And these are how we meet our clients. And these are the kinds of offices we need to meet clients in there's an unbelievable amount of inertia around the industry that if we have more folks just I think thinking differently we'll be able to to bridge that gap and meet more people in need and in the middle 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and it, you know, I had the advantage of working with LGBTQ folks who, for better or worse, right, represent really non-traditional modes of existence in our community, right. which I think is an amazing, beautiful, bountiful thing. Um, and so that really accelerated my willingness to have a business that existed in that same weird but bountiful way. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is an uncomfortable and unpredictable thing for sure, but it's doable if you just try. So Nicholas, uh, Derek, one of the producers for our show, shared a, a really amazing email that you uh, you wrote to the the Clio team, um, and I actually shared that email with the whole company because it was such a I think powerful perspective of what's happening on the ground with COVID nineteen and the, some of the personal impacts it's having on uh, on our, our customers and and of course the broader community. I'm I'm wondering, can you share a little bit more about uh, what what you shared in that that email? Uh, and some of the initiatives that are underway that you're involved in? Sure. So I think like a lot of communities, right, there are, as we said at the beginning, a lot of different things all happening at once. And New Orleans is no exception to that. Um, we have certainly had our, our fair share of um, community action, protest, um, sort of civil unrest, um, well-deserved, I think. Um, we're still battling the coronavirus. We're sort of sandwiched in among a lot of other states who are seeing a pretty severe second wave of outbreaks. Mm -hmm. um, it's getting to be the middle of summer here, which means 90 plus degree uh, weather every day. Uh, and it's hurricane season on top of all right. that. So we've got a lot of uh, balls in the air to be dealt with, but I think um, our communities have really risen to the occasion. So one of the first things um, that's happened is um, community organizers, community activists have sort of rallied around a number of different initiatives. Southern Solidarity is one of the groups here in New Orleans, and they responded really quickly to gathering um, food for home delivery, um, both to folks who are physically unable or economically unable to get meals or groceries for themselves, They've um, assembled teams of street medics that are providing medical care to houseless folks who are dealing with all this um, sort of chaos around us. Um, and they're an amazing team made up of um, primarily people of color, um, a definite fair share of, of queer folks. Um, and quite frankly, they're not the richest folks in our community either, um, who, are, who, who truly understand that it is one crisis that separates a lot of us from absolute disaster. Um, right. So that's been sort of the boots on the ground thing, along with, you know, I've been working with the National Lawyers Guild as a legal observer, going out to um, protests that have been taking place. Um, there has also been, you know, emergency legal response in the form of hotlines and bail funds, which are becoming more and more common across the country, which I think is a, a great response to a really unjust system that we have. Um, but on top of all of that, or apart from it, or addition to, you know, I wear several hats on a regular basis anyway. So yes, I have my private practice, which has taken a hit, just like everybody's has. Um, I also serve as a public defender in juvenile court, 
Um, so like a lot of public defenders offices, the financial support for that basically ended when criminal court proceedings ended because they're funded primarily through the fines that are collected from folks who are processed through that system. Right. Um, but because the law requires those systems to continue working, there are a lot of people who are having to do that work without getting paid. Um, and that just kind of is what it is. Um, additionally, myself and a couple of other attorneys had uh, started a nonprofit le legal office that was geared to providing emergency legal services to um, survivors of domestic violence. Um, our funding for that got cut pretty severely, pretty suddenly, um, because the larger organization that sort of sub-granted to us had to um, reconfigure their budget because the city had to reconfigure its budget um, because money was just sort of drying up all over the place, right? Um, so it, it all kind of trickled down to pull the rug out from under everybody real quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, I, don't, I don't think for me and for my community that sitting home and, and sort of waiting for it to be over is not an option. So I'm still going to court uh, in a mask and behind plexiglass and all that jazz um, or online, uh, doing some court online, um, going out and, and rallying with my community members um, to try and voice our desire for change when I can um, and doing the best I can to look after myself, my friends, my family, my community in the process. So. It is a lot, um, but it's a lot for everybody. And I think for those of us who have the ability and the will to grapple with these things, now is the time to do it, it, it more than any other time. Um, whether that means donating your time, donating your money, um, donating your emotional energy to sort of correct things going on around you to the best of your ability, I would encourage anybody who can to do. It's a great message to wrap up our discussion with Nicholas. It's, uh, I've really uh, enjoyed your perspective, a really powerful viewpoint on, I think the opportunity that uh, li lies ahead. And it does feel like we, we might be at a, a bit of an inflection point for how things will look going forward. And, and thank you for the incredible work you're, you're doing on a daily basis. Uh, and, and as a, to, to wrap things up, um, what's one takeaway you'd like to leave our listeners with from, from our discussion? I guess the one takeaway uh, that kind of underpins a lot of what we talked about is my encouragement for people to resist resist your internal narratives of what you can or can't do or should or shouldn't do for your fellow man or woman or person um, to resist the external forces that say things have to be a certain way that say that we have to be pinned in and confined um, to resist our own ideas of what the world can look like. Um, I think this has become a rallying cry for a lot of folks that seems almost silly but I think is very true, which is a fundamental part of revolution is imagination. Um, that, mm -hmm. that what we need is more folks who are willing to just imagine what's possible 
not just what's doable. I love that. Well, it's a great note to, to wrap up on, Nicholas. Thanks so much for the tremendous work you do and thanks for spending the time with us today. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 